Well, we're going to continue uh, this morning on Pastor Mark's uh, series, uh, looking at things that are particularly um, ordinary questions that we as pastors get, and um, uh, certainly speaking about fathering this morning uh, fits that um, category. So if you have your Bibles, you might um, put your finger in uh, Deuteronomy 4 or 5. We're going to uh, basically stay there. Uh, for the um, message. That's Deuteronomy, will be in 4, 5, and 6. So it's Father's Day. Now I've spoken on fathering often over the years, although I must tell you, uh, never without a bit of discomfort, because I never really considered myself to have been a great father. I was average at best. Maybe I'd give myself a C plus, certainly no better. Now, good preachers are supposed to utilize these scriptures as the foundation for their messages and then make applications using some of their own life's experiences. And that had always been tough for me on this topic. But sitting here in church the first Sunday of May, I sensed the Lord giving me a revelation of sorts. And when I sensed, went something like this. No, Pete, you never considered yourself to have been a great father. But you do view yourself as a pretty good grandfather. And then here's where the revelation came. Then I sensed the Lord saying to me this. If you had been to your own children, what you are these days to your grandchildren, you'd have been a very good father. So talk about that. And right then, that verse from Deuteronomy 4.9 popped into my mind. A verse that for the last 10 years, I've considered to be my marching orders in my role as a grandfather now to 17. Moses, now 120 years old, is outstanding in the plains of Moab, knowing that he is shortly to die. And God moves him then to preach what is by far the longest sermon in all the Bible. The 40 years of desert wandering are at an end. And Moses wants to make sure that the lessons learned are never forgotten. And so the sermon reads like a summary of reflections, instructions, admonitions, and the like. And then, in the fourth chapter, the ninth verse we find this critical instruction. That's Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, the ninth verse. Just make sure that you stay alert. Keep close watch over yourselves. Don't forget anything of what you've seen. Don't let your hearts wander off. Stay vigilant as long as you live. And then here are the critical words for me over these last 10 years. Moses says, teach what you've seen and heard to your children and grandchildren. Teach what you've seen and heard to your children and grandchildren. Not just grandchildren. As I've attempted to apply it these past 10 years, but children 
and grandchildren. Moses makes no distinction. What's required of a grandfather is similarly required of a father. And so what I want to do this morning is speak to you on the subject of becoming a great and godly father. And I'll be speaking from the perspective of a grandfather, so let's pray. Lord, you said it so well through Pastor Mitch this morning that you are our example. You're the ultimate father and we have only to look to you. I pray, dear Lord, that as I use your scriptures, these marvelous words of Moses, that um, you'll step in and, Lord, that we'll see you in those words. Lord, we want to be the best fathers possible, which is to say, Lord, that we want to be much like you. So I pray you help us in that this morning in Jesus' name. Actually, let me give you a better title for this message. A better title would be the process of becoming a great and godly father. The process of becoming a great and godly father. For you see, anything of significance that we set out to accomplish in this life involves a process. There's a series of steps that we must go through before we arrive at the end for which we seek. Graduating from high school in 1960, I knew in advance that I wanted to go into the business world. My dad had been in business starting out as an accountant and then in time moving into insurance and then into running corporations. And back then studies in accounting were seen to be the surefire best route to get into business. And so in September of 1960, I left home, headed off for college, beginning my own process of getting into the business world. And I want to tell you a little bit about that process this morning, and we'll see if it might have application to the subject of fathering. Now, my process involved three distinct steps. First of all, I had to build a foundation. In other words, develop some level of expertise, if you will, a bank of knowledge. And for that, I studied business, majoring in accounting, spending what at the time seemed like four very long years at it. But you see, that was just the basics. Without that, nobody would even consider hiring me. There was no way to move through the process without first building that foundation. And it's similar with fathering, as I'll show you shortly. There's, first of all, a foundation to be built, without which no man can hope to successfully move through the fathering process. And then secondly, there was a test. Now certainly this wasn't required simply to get into business. My degree would have been enough for that. But we're not speaking this morning about the process of just fathering. Oh no. There's a huge difference between just fathering and becoming a great and godly father. You see, I didn't just want to get into business. I wanted to get it into it in such a way that I could be great at it. 
I wanted to be very good at what I did. And in those days, the number one route to becoming very good would be to take the CPA exam, that certified public accountancy, and then join one of the then big eight accounting firms. You see, good grades in college might get me the job, but to really succeed, to move higher up in the process, I had to take and pass that test. And I passed that in Colorado in 1964. So I'd secured the foundation, I'd passed the test, and only now was I really begun, ready to actually begin the work. Similarly with fathering, there's a foundation to be built, there's a test to be passed, before you can ever hope to be a great and godly father. Now the final step in my process was to begin actually using all of that preparatory stuff, steps one and two, and beginning to engage in the work for which I was trained. It's kind of like I had passed those two critical preparatory steps, and I could now be trusted to enter into the big event. In other words, putting my knowledge and experience and background to work and beginning to execute the varying skills and techniques that would be required of me in the business world. And what I want to suggest to you fathers this morning is that there's a similar preparatory process if your goal is to become a great and godly father. Now, I don't want to exclude you gals this morning, nor any of you men who are not fathers, young people. I want you to pay close attention because there's much in this process for every single one of us. So quite simply, if you want to become a great and godly father, this process must be followed. First of all, a foundation must be laid and then maintained. Secondly, a test must be passed and in fact continually passed. And then finally, and only if we've been successful in those first two, can you hope to engage in what we're speaking about this morning, the work of becoming a great and godly father. So let's take a look at these building blocks starting with a foundation that's got to be laid and maintained. And for that, we're once again going to join Moses out on the plains of Moab, speaking to the whole Israelite community. And in chapters 5 through 12 of Deuteronomy, Moses summarizes all that God expects of his people, and he specifically focuses on the Ten Commandments and their duty to serve only the one true God. And then in the sixth chapter, the fourth and fifth verses, Moses speaks what is by far the two most important verses in the history of Judaism, both past, present, and I'm sure forever. That's Deuteronomy 6, the fourth and fifth verses. Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Let me help you understand how important those two verses were to Jews of old and Jews today. Serious-minded Jews would actually take those two verses and put them onto small little scrolls, inscribing them thereon. Then they would take those two scrolls and put them in little boxes, and they'd tie those boxes around their forehead and around their arm any time they went off to pray and any time they went into the synagogue. They called them phylacteries. What they would also do, they'd take similar boxes with those two verses inscribed therein, and they'd put them into the doorpost of their house. And the doorpost of a Jewish house, that was the single most sacred place. So anybody coming and going would know that this is a house. Uh, these are believers in the faith that are serious about what all God has to send to them. You see, they recognized that no half-hearted sentiment would ever be good enough. To them, nothing could be more emphatic than that second verse, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. You see, to them, this relationship they had with God must in fact overwhelm the totality of their lives. And without that, well, to the Jews of old, life simply was not worth living. It had to be all their heart and all their soul and all their strength. And my point is this. Without the foundation being built and maintained, there is nothing that you're going to be able to accomplish in a great and godly way, be it your job, be it your marriage, and for sure, fathering. And so, fathers, this morning, let me ask you this. <clears throat> what place does God have in your life today? Now, fortunately... That's an easy question for us to answer. I mean, we intuitively know the answer. We know whether God is foremost in all that we as men do, or whether He is simply an addendum to all the other seemingly important things in our lives. So, fathers, I ask you, is your belief a casual belief? Is your belief a... Sunday's only belief. Is your belief a when I'm in trouble belief? Is your belief a just something to do belief? And maybe even is your belief a I like the fellowship with the guys at church belief? Or is it a with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength kind of belief. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us that the house of our life would never fall if its foundation was on the rock. And the foundation Jesus was speaking about, what might that have been? We know it well. 
Jesus tells us that everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. That's the foundation, men. Now as to how we men, how we fathers, how we make that belief such a constant, such an overwhelming presence in our lives, well that's a subject far beyond the scope of my message this morning. But it involves things like developing a regular prayer life, learning the scriptures, meditating on them, becoming filled with the Spirit as Pastor Mark so well spoke on a few weeks back, becoming adept at hearing from God and other such important practices of the faith. And for that, you watch other men that you respect. You consult with them. You read the scriptures yourselves and learn from them. You ask your pastors to help you. You develop the habit of getting off on retreat on an annual basis. There are all any number of seminars, books, and things like that. So I say to you this morning, fathers, the first step in your process of becoming a great and godly father is that you've got to secure the foundation. So let's go on. Now back in 1964, when my foundation was secured, that being my college studies, I had to pass a test that being the CPA exam, before I could actually begin to engage in the work of my chosen profession. I mean, I could work in it, but I certainly could not have any kind of a leadership position. Now, we all know that knowledge alone, it never prepares us to do the actual work. Rather, it's in the application of knowledge that we're ready to do the work. Many professions today call that an apprenticeship program, in other words, on-the-job training, usually a period of years spent before we're ready to actually perform the work ourselves. Well, not surprising, that's also the case with fathering, although many fathers are not aware of it. They erroneously expect that they can father simply because their first child has arrived. I was like that when son John arrived in 1965, and what a rude awakening that was for me. You see, God also has an apprenticeship program that you've got to get through and constantly maintain if you want to become a great and godly father. It's as simple as this. Between the foundation for fathering and the actual work of fathering, there's a critical middle ground test that you've got to enter into, master, and maintain. It's called marriage. And here I want to make a distinction this morning between what I want to refer to as the purpose of marriage and the practice of marriage. I've brought two of my absolute favorite books on marriage. The first one by Gary Thomas is called Sacred Marriage. That's the best book, as far as I know, on the purpose of marriage. 
and then Love and Respect, which many of you are familiar with. That, to me, is the best book on the practice of marriage, and we had a course last fall, and we've taught this three or four times in the past, and it's a marvelous book talking about the, um, the intricacies of making marriage work. But really what I want to emphasize this morning is not the, um, the practices, but I want to rather emphasize the place and the purpose of marriage in the big scheme of our lives. The fact that we need to make our marriages as God intended if we really want to be the kind of great and godly father that God intended. I love the byline on Gary Thomas's book. Listen to this. Gary Thomas, Sacred Marriage, but he says this. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more so than to make us happy? I believe that's exactly the case. For many years I've said it, many of you men have heard me say it, I call marriage God's on-the-job training for the kingdom of heaven. How often have you heard that, sweetie? Yeah? It's the ultimate application of the foundation. You see, all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, those are words. That's knowledge. It does nothing without application. And I believe God's number one application for the majority of people is marriage. Now, why do I say that? Simply this. 97% of every person ever born will be married. Well, how come? I mean, why did God do it that way? Certainly not for procreation's sake. For goodness sakes, Adam and Eve did not have biological parents. Jesus did not have a biological father. I mean, God could have brought babies into the world in any number of ways. It wasn't for that. Marriage, to me, I've seen it work in my own life for 49 years and in many, many, many lives of men over the last 20 years in ministry. That's the crux. That's the application. That's where the rubber meets the road. If I want to know if a man is serving the Lord... What I really want to say to him, to a married man, I want to say, look, let me speak with your wife for five minutes and tell her to answer truthfully any question I have, and I'll tell you if you're serving the Lord. You see, to me, the only plausible answer, the only plausible answer is that God saw marriage as the number one best way for the majority of people to apply the instructions on how to live. And the tie-in between the two, I mean, it's all over the Bible. You'd have to be blind not to see it. It's everywhere. This relationship that God wants to us, it's constantly compared to the relationship that God intends between a man and wife. To me, it's clear. If you want to get the closest there is to the intimacy we'll one day have with God down here, it's what is supposed to be what is supposed to be prevalent in marriage. But the problem today is that for many marriages, and this is so sad, the ultimate occurs on their wedding day. 
I mean, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's supposed to be but the start. A marriage as God intended is also supposed to be great and godly. And for that, it takes years of work. Lots of trial and error, lots of mistakes, lots of forgiveness, lots of calling on God. Listen, if you will, to these biblical verses. This will give you some sense as to how God sees this. From the husband's perspective, Colossians 3. It says, husbands, go all out in love for your wives. Proverbs 5 says to husbands, enjoy the wife you married at a young man, lovely as an angel, beautiful as a rose, never take her love for granted. Ecclesiastes 9, I love this one, relish life with the spouse you love each and every day. Man, do I relish that, kiddo? Relish life with your spouse each and every day. And then finally, the husband. You gals, you, you tell me you wouldn't want to hear this from your husband. The husband says to his wife, you're altogether feminine. I'm spoiled for anyone else. Your beauty within and without is absolute. You see, that's the way it's supposed to be. You talk about a husband who's determined to grow his marriage to become great and godly. Hey, those verses are the pattern. And then how about these responses from the wives? Listen to these. In Ecclesiastes 9, the wife says this. And I tell you, fathers or men, you tell me you don't want to hear this from your wife. She says this. I'm all he wants. I'm the world to him. I want to hear that every day, kiddo. Or in Song of Songs 2, she says, He took me home for a festive meal, <laughs> but his eyes feasted on me. How about that? Isn't that terrific? Oh, what man of us doesn't want to hear that? You see, that's God's pattern. You see, that's not supposed to be the exception. That's supposed to be for every marriage. You know, I want you fathers, you men to listen closely now. When your marriage is not great and godly, two things occur regularly that rob you of your ability to be a great and godly father. Listen carefully. Number one, your energy is greatly depleted by the arguments, stresses, emotional turmoil that always accompany marriages that are gone astray. And secondly, the Bible makes it so clear that marriage is supposed to invigorate us men, invigorate us fathers, to provide us with new and renewed strength, to give us mental and emotional help that's critical to fathering. If marriage is not right, you lose out on all that. See, in summary, men, fathers, you just can't be great, much less godly, without living in the confines also of a great and godly marriage. The two go together. God intended it to be so. And I want to make two final points about marriage before we go on to the work of fathering. Thanks be to God, Doris and I are in our 49th year. Uh, in a month we'll be in the first day of our 50th year. And we have a great and godly marriage. Don't we, kiddo? 
But it wasn't all that way. The first 24, 25 years were anything but great and godly. Doris ended up in a hospital with just emotional difficulties, and I knew that I was much the cause. It was about the same time I began coming here to Portview, and in that period of a year, I was crying out to the Lord, Lord, how can I love her as she deserves? You know? I mean, I, I had the right kind of motivation. And in that process, and coming here to Portview in the auspices of Pastor Paul Hanson, what a marvelous man of God, I came to recognize that we don't have that ability as men. C.S. Lewis said it this way. We don't have the right stuff in us. And he said, because they don't make that stuff down here. And I came to recognize that. No, I couldn't love Doris the way she deserved. As much as I tried. But for Jesus, I could. You see? For Jesus, I could. That's what began to happen to me in 1988 and 1989. I began to call out to Jesus and said, Lord, you've got to do it in me. I've already taken 24 years. I've proved, 24 years is enough, right? I've proved I don't have it in me. But for you, Lord, then I can do it. That's been the story of our last 25 years, right, Kill? You see, my point simply is, You can't get, you can't just take the foundation and skip over marriage and expect. No, no, that is an integral part of the way God intended it. And the second point I want to make on marriage is this. There is a key missing ingredient in marriages, and I see this far and wide, and it's this. Husbands and wives alike simply do not have passion. Now, I'm not talking about passion for each other. What I'm talking about is passion for marriage. Passion for the fact of marriage. Passion for the gift of marriage, if I can say it that way. You see, we got to believe that marriage can be all that God says it can believe, that it can be. We got to be convinced that that foundation is indispensable and it will lead us into having all God intends of marriage. You know, think of it this way. Well, let me just, let me just say it this way. I believe the reason that that passion is absent, men and women alike, is that I believe so many far and wide just have no sense for how good marriage can be. And there's a reason for that. Let me say this. Eight-year-old Johnny has never been to the Magic Kingdom. Okay? His parents want to take him there, and so what they do, they pull out a book, try to explain what the Magic Kingdom is like. They show him the pictures and all this and that. Well, now you tell me, how does that compare with walking through the gate Stepping on the main street, seeing the magic kingdom and that incredible castle. You see, you can't get the message across except you step into it. That's what marriage is all about. I can't explain to you how good marriage is. 
Not even the scriptures tell you that. They simply tell you the fact of it. You can't understand how good marriage is until you step into it. You see? I had never stepped into it my first 24 years. It's only been these last 26 years as Doris and I have stepped into it. And you see, to step into it, the foundation has got to be secure, you see? You can't do it otherwise, you see? With all your heart, with all your whole soul, with all your strength, and when you step into it, then God just been, begins to reveal, and it's like you, oh my goodness, Lord, I never knew. Or I would have changed earlier, you see? So where are we? Just here. Um, you want to be a great and godly father? Well, God's laid out the process from the beginning. First, the foundation has got to be secured and maintained. Are you willing to make God your all in all? Not just come to church every week, not come on Wednesday night, not just um, give lip service to the Bible and all this. No, I mean seriously step into it. To make God your all in all. That's the foundation. Number two, the test has got to be passed. There's just this middle piece. You know, um, if I can say it this way, the inventor's invention never begins to show itself fully until and unless the user begins to operate it according to the inventor's specific instructions. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. The inventor's invention never begins to show itself fully until and unless the user begins to operate it according to the inventor's specific instructions. How many times did I try to put up a tent without looking at the instructions, sweetie? <laughs> you know, you know we, we laugh about it and we know it's a truism, but it's a truism here. You know, this is not just... Uh, you know, a wonderful book and, and wonderful history and all this and that. It's a point-by-point point instruction book. You see? And if we expect to have our Christian lives or our marriages or fathering work right, well, we've got to follow the instructions. Not just kind of some of them, not just the ones we like. No, but step-by-step, point-by-point. That's how... We get there. So, finally, we got ten minutes left. That's plenty of time to talk about fathering. And for that, we go back to the plains of Moab. We look for our friend Moses. Now, important to recognize that Moses was speaking to a very large gathering of men, women, children, you name it. But whenever he gave directives, it was clearly to the men. You see, it was mainly fathers that Moses was addressing. Now, women obviously had a role, but it was clearly the men, the fathers who were mainly responsible for carrying out his instructions within the family. Now, listen to this, fathers. Moses says this. I'm in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 8. He said, write these commandments that I've given you today on your hearts, and don't miss this. To you men, to you fathers, Moses says, get them inside of you 
and get them inside of your children. Pretty clear, isn't it? Talk about them wherever you are, sitting at home or walking in the streets. Talk about them from the time you get up in the morning to when you're in bed at night. <laughs> I read that and I say, you know, that's just incredible. Moses says, first of all, get them inside of you. In other words, secure the foundation. You can't hope to take that next step. How are you ever going to get these things inside your children if you don't get them inside yourself first? You see, Moses was not talking about, let me be clear about this. Moses was not talking about getting them into and proficient at soccer or basketball or gymnastics or any number of athletic pursuits. And Moses was not talking about involving them in the things you're involved in, such as going to basketball games or camping or fishing or snowmobiling or you name it. You know? And Moses was not talking about working with your children on your homework and teaching them proper manners and helping them to live responsibly uh, through chores at home and all and all and all. Now those are not unimportant things. But Moses makes it abundantly clear that there's a higher level of responsibility that fathers are called to. You see, first and foremost to Moses, he's saying to us as fathers, it's the commandments. That's what we get into ourselves first, and then we get into our children. And all these other things, once again, are not unimportant. But how about, I mean, many, many fathers, this is where they live with all this other stuff. And the thing that never rises to the level of uh, is... The commandments, getting them into themselves and getting them into their children. Um, what I want to do, I want to tell you about five specific things that I do with my grandchildren. There's many, many, many more. Um, but as I, um, as I end today and I want to um, talk about, okay, now we're, we're through the foundation. Let's just assume that um, we've committed ourselves that God will be our all in all. We've determined to make our marriage great and godly. Okay, so now we're, um, it's kind of like I just passed the CPA exam. Now what? Okay, now we're into the work. Okay, and there's many, 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 many things involved in the work, most of which I didn't do a very good job at the first time around. But thanks be to God, I've learned. I want to tell you about five things that I do with my grandchildren that I wish I had done with my children. Number one, Bible studies. <laughs> I have 17 grandchildren, and I do Bible studies now with 12 of them. Um, any father can do Bible studies with his children, ought to do Bible studies with his children. I start when they're five or six years old. I do it one-on-one. -on -one. I've got this little sheet, you see, this keeps, tr you know, I, I'm doing Bible studies with that many of them, I've got to keep track of it, okay? And what I do, I'll take them out for uh, breakfast before they go to school, or I'll pick them up after school, or I'll take them on a Saturday to go to an ice cream shop or whatever, and we'll first uh, take the Bible. They'll read a little bit, I'll read a little bit, they'll read a little bit, I'll read a little bit, we'll, 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 we'll talk, and then we'll have ice cream, or whatever we're going to have. But... Um, Bible studies, you know what I mean? I mean, I think it's just basic. It's just basic. You know, if you do nothing else, you ought to teach your children the Bible. And, of course, we learn it then simultaneously. I try to get during the 
months that Doris and I were here, the seven or eight months of the year, I tried to get these little ones three times a month. Okay, that's, um, uh, what, 33 Bible studies a month. That's about 160 or 170, you know, and so forth. You know, and, and I have to go get them. You know, fathers, your children are right there. It's easier for you. You just say, hey, let's go outside. You know, I got to drive and, you know, and so forth. But, but, you know, it's just basic, you know. And you don't have to be greatly educated. The word itself, kind of I learned after a couple of years that we'd do the verse and all this and that, and the Lord kind of gave me wisdom to, and it was like this, the Lord just said, go where the child wants to go. In other words, I might start with the, the, the particular story. I mainly uh, stick with the, the four Gospels, and there's like a message there, but all of a sudden one of the children, um, you know, like um, 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 uh, Lucy is five years old. I was at um, um, the McDonald's in Grafton on Wednesday, and we've got a Bible study. She wanted to do the one about the fish, and, you know, there's all these. She said, no, I want the one about the money and the fish. So we did the Bible study, and then we do the Bible study, and she says to me, she said, how come people die? How about that? Well, that's where we went. You see? So Bible studies, that's just basic. Number two, there's two key scriptures that every child has got to know. Got to know. We don't, there, a year doesn't go by that we don't drill on these two scriptures and they keep coming back. Number one, they're both in John. John chapter 3, Nicodemus. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How often have we talked about that, Jacob? Often, right? And they know exactly what it means to be born again. That for everybody, man, woman, and child, sometime during this life, we ourselves have got to invite Jesus in. It's not enough to know everything. It's not enough to be in church every way. No, 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 no. We have a role in this. We have to invite Jesus in. We have to welcome Him into our heart. We have to be born again. It's just basic. It's the one verse that Billy Graham always keys every single sermon on and has for more than 50 years. It's, it's just the root of being a Christian. You've got to be born again. And the second verse, this will probably surprise you. John chapter 11, Jesus talking to Martha. I love it. He says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Gracie, we were talking about that just last week. I talked to my kids about that all the time, my grandkids. I said, this is not you. This is, this is a hand. This isn't Papa. Where's Papa Tabitha? Right inside. And I said, when you believe in Jesus, when you follow Jesus, the Bible says you will never die. Right? You're, you're, in fact, we, don't, we refer to this as skin and bones in our family. Skin and bones. Your skin and bones die. But you don't. We, the, 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 the who we are, the Bible tells, says very clearly, we're with Jesus and we get a new heavenly body. So with a little Lucy... I said, sweetie, good news. People die, but you will never die. She's only five years old. She's already asked Jesus into her heart. You see? And that constantly, you see, because it's a basic thing of life, particularly as we age, death is there. It's going to affect our mortal bodies. 
but the Bible says it doesn't have to affect us. So those two sections of Scripture should, just should be a part. And you, you, you'll be amazed. You get that into your children and in all kinds of different ways in your life, all circumstances, that will just come back. Something will happen to somebody and you'll say, yeah, but we never die. Number three, physical evidences of God. That's one thing we did a fair good job at. We used to always read to our kids from the book, Catherine Kuhlman, I Believe in Miracles. I love to do things with the grandchildren where there's a physical demonstration of the power of God. I take them all to Holy Hill every other year. Why do I go to Holy Hill? Well, I love walking the Stations of the Cross, that marvelous Catholic devotion where you walk through 14 different stations and you, you, you celebrate the passion and death of Jesus. And we always we have prayer books and Tabitha will pray and then I'll pray and then we'll, as we move between stations, we talk about what it must have been like for Jesus. But the big thing about Holy Hill is if we go into the big church down that middle aisle, it's a magnificent church, we cut to the right and we go past the crutches. The crutches and the wheelchairs. That's what tells our grandchildren that it's real. People have come here and been healed by the power of God. I was there with Emma three or four years ago. I'll never forget it. And as we're walking in, she sees this uh, older gal and she's got this cane. She's blind. And Emma said, Papa, she's coming here to be healed. And then as we left, all she could talk about was that. We didn't see this woman again. She said, Papa, I think she got healed. I think she got healed. You see, Mark and Liz told me that this creation museum that I had not been at in Cincinnati, they are right now in the process of building a life-size replica of Noah's Ark. You know how big Noah's Ark was? One and a half football fields long, 450 feet. We've already talked about a year or two hence planning the gathering. Well, we'll take numerous of our families and the grandkids. I, I want them to get. I want them walking inside Noah's Ark. Why? Because the physical evidences make it real. So find physical evidence. If you know somebody that's been healed, hey, get them over and have them testify to your children. You know? Number four. I want to tell you, if any of you men, fathers, are not regular retreatants, then that's the first thing that's got to change in your life. I went on retreat 30 years ago, and in 30 seconds my life was changed. And I've been there every year, the last 30 years. And I always say this, the beautiful thing about retreat is, you're never on your own for more than a year. Because one year later, you're back on retreat. And you go on retreat in silence. And we have three men that run these at our church and do an incredible job. You get in the silence of God, and because God loves us so much, almost before you know it, He's speaking to you about well, this is where you've strayed, Pete, this last year. These are the areas of sin that you've got to work on. These are the weaknesses, this, 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 and this. Now, what kind of a deal is that? To never have to go more than a year. I call it kind of like my uh, ultimate chiropractor every year. That's where I go to get adjusted, you know. And I always need adjustment. 
And every one of you men do too. I want to tell you, you make getting off on retreat once a year. And we run them on the weekends so you don't even have to miss work. It's a Friday night through a Sunday afternoon. And they go up to um, uh, De Pere and you, you just get alone and quiet with God and let Him minister to you. And then finally, number five. <laughs> I love the way Moses says this. Listen, listen, he says, he's talking about our children and grandchildren. He says, talk about them from the time you get up in the morning to when you're all in bed at night. Wherever you are, sitting at home, walking in the streets. Miss Hannah, what do we like to talk about? What do we like to talk about when we're together? Jesus, that's right. And does, sweetie, does it make any difference? Whether we're in church or whether we're on the beach or whether we're in the ice cream shop, does it make any difference? It makes no difference, you see. When the foundation is secure, you see, when it's in us, That'll become as natural as eating and sleeping. I mean, I'm never with my grandkids that we're not talking about Jesus. And there's a whole bunch of them here today. You could ask any one of them. And that's what we're supposed to do as fathers and grandfathers. So this is just a beginning list, fathers. Bible studies for your children. Those two key scriptures, John 3 and John 11. Find physical evidences. And go there with your children. Develop the habit of retreat. In fact, in our family, retreating has almost become like eating and sleeping. I began to bring some of the boys when they were in their teens. And now the last four years, the first weekend of September, Doris takes the girls. And three years from now, Hannah will join them. The second week of September, I take the boys. And one year from now, Chandler back there, he'll be 16, he'll join us. Three generations going off on retreat. And I want to tell you, fathers, if you want a, um, if you want a high in life, you be on retreat walking the grounds, and you see your son doing the same thing. And you know that he's calling out to God to make him become all that God wants him to be. And I can't even imagine what it's going to be for me when it's not just my sons but young Chandler's with us a year from now. And then finally, just talking about Jesus, wherever you are, no matter what the situation is, you know. See, that's why Moses said that you've got to get inside yourself first. I mean, you can't do this kind of stuff if it's not in you first. I didn't have a foundation 25 years ago, or it was a very leaky one. So these kinds of things I'm telling you about now, I couldn't have done even if I'd known about them. The foundation's got to come first. Then take that foundation and apply it in your marriages, and then you're ready to really get in gear and be the kind of father that not only God wants us to be, but for sure, every single one of us fathers, hey, that's what we want to be, right, man? That's what we want to be. Why don't you stand with me, please?
Oh, I just, I'm laughing at Doris because I can't tell you how much I enjoy when I have an opportunity to speak about marriage or fathering or children. You know, because the faith can be, um, what can I say? Um, well, let me just say this way. Marriage, children, uh, our families, that's the application of the Scripture, you see? And I mean, Jesus was not interested in the letter of the law. You know, that was the last thing He cared about. That had to happen because it gave us the platform. But what He was interested in was application. The everyday happenings of our lives that gave application to His Father. You know? If you're not celebrating, you know, like, Pastor, what you said, I mean, celebrating fatherhood, celebrating marriage, celebrating you, that you, 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 you live and can, and can give application to these incredible things invented by God. You know, society didn't invent marriage. God invented marriage. Oh, Lord. Father in heaven, oh, I just thank you, Lord, that your word is so, so rich. God, we don't have to go all over the place looking for answers or um, looking at movies or who knows what we do to try to figure out how to live this life. You have put it down step by step by step. And Lord, we're so thankful today uh, for that. Lord, I want to pray for particularly the fathers here. Uh, Lord, they've heard these scriptures. Um, I'd simply give application to Moses' words, but... They're your words through Moses. So these are your words that we want to respond to. And I pray, dear Lord, for every father here. I'm every father-to-be, every soon-to-be father. And Lord, also for all others in this congregation this morning. God, that these words would take root. That they would live. That each one would grasp onto them. And make them a part of their own lives. Oh, God, Holy Spirit, for that we need your grace. We're not able to do it on our own. We certainly proved that. So, God, you must do it in us. But we say to you this morning, we'll cooperate.